no one is a master. In 10,000 years, we will all look like apes. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum, and producer Marcus Sasson behind the scenes. Today, I kind of want to review our summer training sessions with you guys. I, a lot of times we post these 15 second clips or these one minute clips on Instagram and you guys get a little taste or a little nugget of what we do with our training and you, you kind of get to show the highlights of it. But today I kind of want to give you guys a little bit of a 45 minute to an hour kind of talk and conversation of what we actually did, kind of the things that we really, really liked, the things that grew on us this summer things that we learned this summer and then some, some of the things that we wanted to change, some of the things that we really didn't enjoy and kind of want to change and grow with going forward. And that's why I think a quote fits really well is kind of everybody thinks they're this master. And if you look back on your programs in a year and five years, you're going to think you're a fool. You're going to think you're an ape. So just kind of continue that thought process. And today I have with me Carter Schmitz, who was on episode 28. And during that episode, you got to see our connection and just got to see kind of the talk and I kind of tried to manifest Carter to become a Yoakum strength coach. And we actually got it to happen this summer and he was leading our, one of our night sessions, this group. So we got Carter Schmitz here. Carter, it's awesome to have you on the podcast. No, thanks for having me, my man. I really appreciate you pulling me along this summer. I really appreciate being able to take along, be a, be one with your thoughts and get to get to dominate this summer together. Yeah, it was a blast. Like, uh, like I mentioned earlier, we got to have Carter lead one of our later groups in the, in the day. And, I, I think it's going to be cool just to have this conversation with you of kind of the, and we got to do it like day in and day out and just have some of these reviews, but to actually sit down and unpack some of our training thoughts from the summer and kind of what we liked, what we didn't like and how to grow from all this. Yeah, it's going to be, I mean, it's going to be absolutely awesome. I can already, I mean, every conversation we have seems to get my thoughts going a million miles a second. So I always walk away from conversations thinking more than I walked in with, I feel like. And, and that's awesome. I mean, that's where growth happens. That's how, that's how we're going to be better next summer and then moving forward. Yeah, for sure. And the, the, the first thing I kind of want to start with, and I'm going to push this one to you, is kind of how we set up our summer kind of daily setup, that the, the little micro view of a setup. Like what, what did our days kind of look like? What was kind of our setup? And I know you and I had a little bit of a every day we had some different exercises and different things happening, but our global scheme of our exercises were the same. So what did kind of our weekly setup look like? Yep. Yep. So we broke it down. We had four days a week of training. Um, and then three days a week of essentially totally off. We our four days. We work primarily Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. Um, our Monday and Thursday days were our, I'll say high contact days, you know, very, a lot of psychological arousal, a lot of skinniness, fatigue, probably being caused a lot of reactivity, um, agility work, high contact, controlling your body, controlling other people's body, exploring movement, things of that nature. Um, Tuesday, Fridays were then primarily our more linear days, linear speed, linear acceleration on the field. And then we would always pair that with some sort of strength work. So Mondays we were working usually horizontal upper body. Um, Thursdays was then vertical upper body. Tuesdays would be a unilateral lower body strength exercise. Fridays would then be bilateral strength exercise. So so that's like super high scale, looking at it from the very top picture, how we broke it down. Um, and then going more into the individual training day, you know, we always started on the field. We, we never would get to that point where our weight room work prioritized over our field work. So we always on the field for about probably 45 minutes to an hour, sometimes longer if things were rolling and we felt like momentum was building, energy was high. So we would take that field work. That was our priority day in and day out. And then we would go head over to the weight room and hit our strength work in um, strength as well as our auxiliaries. So auxiliaries always came after our strength work. That was kind of the last thing that we would do. And usually it would just be some sort of complementary movement to our primary strength work. Um, but that was essentially how we broke it down and then getting, getting even deeper into it. You know, let's just, we can dive into like a Monday, Thursday. That was that, those were kind of our big days. Those were our, really get after it days. And then we kind of complemented those with our Tuesday, Friday, I feel. Um, but so what an, an uh, agility or high contact day would look like for us would be, you know, guys would show up, we would get a little bit of a structured warm up, and we would hit some of the big things that we were after, you know, ankle mobility, you know, increased muscle temp, increased CNS activation, kind of that stuff. And what I found was that, you know, the first, 10 minutes of structured warmup was really the place for me to grow with my guys and to build a relationship with my athletes. You know, you're shooting the shit kind of, you're talking about, 
talking about baseball, you're talking about, you know, football, you're talking about whatever. Don't, don't laugh at me. I know the brewers aren't playing well. this lately. <laughs> um, so that's kind of where you build that relationship with your athletes. I felt like that was where we truly bonded. And then from there, we would transition into either we'd go directly into our movement of the day, we would call it, which would be some sort of crawling, some sort of rolling movement, um, some sort of maybe like a stick avoidance drill where we would have them in a bear call position and we would be moving a PVC pipe around and forcing them to avoid it, find new positioning, try and try and solve the movement solution or solve the movement problem that we were offering them um, in a very low impact way. You know, we weren't looking to totally like get after them right away with this movement. We just wanted to get them to explore a little bit in the first 10 minutes. Occasionally, this is the time that we would fill with, with a low impact competitive environment. So maybe a spike ball, some sort of bear crawl. I know I did a lot with like bear crawls and like cone, cone type games where you're trying to knock cones off the other person's back. And this would be kind of where you institute those things, try and try and get some competitiveness early in the training session. I felt like it really built energy levels. I felt like it did way more to boost like CNS activation than simple, you know, straight ahead buildups would do or anything like that. Uh, and then the big thing is, you know, they find new movements during these types of competitive environments and during these games. So, so that was the big thing. So after we would get into that, into our movement of the day, then we would get into body control, which was kind of a big, big element I felt of our summer programming, especially as with our football guys. And so that would be, you know, controlling your body and also simultaneously trying to control somebody else's body. So maybe we're doing bear crawl, pushing drills against one another. Maybe we're doing plank wars where you're facing somebody in the plank and you're trying to pull each other out from that plank, trying to have them lose stability and fall. You know, there's so, there were so many different varieties that we did. Maybe it was like bear crawling while you're kind of like pushing and prodding on your opponent, trying to get them to fall over um, stick wars where you're pulling and pushing on a stick, trying to get, so just finding ways to increase contact, control your body, control somebody else's body at the same time. Cause in the end, so much of football, so much of sport really is, is just that. So then we would move on from body control um, and we would get into our agility work, which essentially, you know, we as coaches would try and formulate and try to build some environment that the athletes would then have to navigate. So they would have some sort of reactivity in there. There would be some sort of perception action coupling where they have to navigate and through their movement, solve the problem. Maybe you know, we did a lot of like razzle, which is kind of like an ultimate Frisbee, but with a football, we did a lot of one V one type environments where you have a defender in front of you and you're simply trying to get by them uh, t-shirt tag where you got t-shirts sticking out of your back of your, sh of your shorts, like a tail essentially. And you're trying to pull everyone else's. So yeah, so that was our agility work. And usually by then we're on the field probably about an hour and then we transition into the weight room. So once we get into the weight room, we're talking some sort of plyo, some sort of power-based movement first, usually. And then we get into our strength work. Um, and our strength work really depended on the day. You know, I broke it down either. Usually it was like horizontal upper or vertical upper, unilateral lower or bilateral lower. And we really took that. And I, this was one thing that I really liked about our programming was how, you know, we didn't really duplicate strength exercises on a week-to-week -week basis. If, you know, if the athletes hex bar deadlifted really heavy this week, next week we came back with, with a Zerker squat or a front squat or some sort of different, all of these subtle different changes, I feel really challenged the body in new ways. And, and, you know, I would say it, I would say load the body, but not always with a barbell, you know, athletes don't move barbells for a living, at least not football players. You know, if you're a power lifter, different story, but so yeah, so we got into our strength work and then we would pair that with some sort of complementary auxiliary. You know, you always say build the armor. So we're attacking bodily areas that are pretty common to injury, hamstrings, adductors, um, you know, posterior shoulders, rotator cuffs, a lot of lat work, a lot of pulling, stuff like that. Um, so that was the auxiliary work. And then we ended the day usually with some sort of ISO, some sort of long durational ISO hold, a lot of lunges, um, a lot of single leg stands, push up ISOs, things of that nature. So, so that was really kind of how our programming looked. And then on our linear days, it was essentially the same thing, just more linear based work and less, less reactivity. So more on our max velocity day, it was more buildups, more flying tens, more bounds, uh, resisted sprints, stuff like that. 
um, while we're during our on the field time. And then on our acceleration based days, you're looking at more uh, like more resistance sprints, hill runs. One of the coolest things I thought we did was, was actually our variation starts is what we called it, which essentially is just a straight up 10 yard sprint. But every time you are starting that sprint in a new position, and that was something that you let the athletes pick. And some of my guys got really creative with it and, um, and would pick totally wild positions to come out of, come out of. And then once you sit in that position, you give them a go and then everybody has to somehow find a way to sprint out of that position. And some, some of them, some of those positions that they found were so challenging to get out of and sprint, but that was good. That was what we were after. That was what we were looking for. Um, so, so yeah, so that was kind of high level, high level breakdown of, of what our day to day looked like. You know, like I said, prioritizing the field work, that was our, our priority basically all summer with all of our guys. Um, and then the weight room work kind of was that complement to it. Yeah. I, I love that huge overview. Cause I think it allows us now to dive into separate aspects. And I was taking even notes during this part of it, but the, the, the first part that I kind of want to talk about is the, the big emphasis of the field work over the weight room work. And one of the questions that we got asked is like, what were some of the aspects that you took from the quarantine training when you didn't have access to the weight room? If you, if you guys remember early on a couple months ago where we couldn't go into the weight room, we couldn't go into the gym and it was actually all outside. Like what were some of the aspects that you took from that? And now we're applying to when you do have access to the weight room. And I think the biggest thing I personally took from that is how much you can get done outside. And how much, how little you actually have to transition into the weight room. And that's huge for me. And I continue to emphasize this self with my own coaching and my own players and my own training. But at the end of the day, like I grew up with like 24 years of bias of like, you need to be in the weight room. You need to be in the weight room. And I get DMs a lot about is like, how do you force yourself out of the weight room? Like, how do you create all these games outside the weight room? How do you do these things outside of the weight room? And the number one thing is like, you have to force yourself outside of the weight room. If you try and do these things in the weight room, at the end of the day, you're going to find a barbell. The barbell is going to find it in your, yourself with it in your hands. And you're just going to continue to add weight. Like if, if you had those meathead biases in you as a coach, as a player, anything, like if you just sit in the weight room, you're never going to create these environments because you never force yourself to. And I think that's one of the best things that, and I wrote an article on it early is like one of the best things quarantine can do is like to teach you this, like you need to learn how to control your body. You need to learn how to control others' bodies. And you can do this all outside without a barbell in your hands. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And one thing, one thing that I love talking about is how, how can we help athletes mold movement solutions, you know, and that's something that's going to take place on the field. Primarily, I would say probably 95% of the time, that's where those movement solutions are going to be formed, you know? And so, and so I guess, what do I mean by movement solutions? You know, we look at sports and we need to understand the environment that these athletes are being placed into. And, you know, in order for their to be a movement solution there needs to be a problem and that problem i'm, I'm losing you carter that made up all in a way to essentially build these environments in training and allow the athletes to explore these environments in training because that's how they're going to mold these movement solutions that's how they're going to fill their toolbox per se and that's all going to take place on the field. Those are things that are going to take place on the field primarily. Yeah. And that, that's something like you mentioned when you try to break down the sport. And I think, uh, I think it's Mike Tucker that says this, but he's talking about how like there's no barbell at the 50 yard line, you know, like there's an, there's an, yeah. at the 50 yard line when you get there and you're trying to score a touchdown, you're trying to make that person miss what's going to be waiting. There's not a barbell loaded up with 500 pounds. And that's something I want to emphasize and just talk about too, is like our breakdown of days and like, why do we do it this way? And why is Monday? that way and Tuesday is the linear day. And that's because I, I kind of broke it down in my head of not so much high, low, more so one day is to create, explore and do movement options. And the other day is output based. And that's where we want to do these linear sprints and these longer sprints and these faster sprints to where there's less creativity and there's more just output, like straight output, because I do believe output's important. If you have an athlete that and I don't think there's very many out there. I think we are very much on the output aspects. Like these athletes are maxed to their output capacities. Not all athletes, but most athletes are put in the weight room, put in sprinting, like we're going to max their outputs and they have no way to actually use this ability. They have no way to use the force that they can create because they have no creation mm-hmm. abilities. 
and this is where something I want to emphasize is like, if we have an athlete and I, again, I don't think there's a ton of them that can create a bunch, but they don't have any outputs and they're not going to do anything. Like, all right, they know where to go. They know how to put their bodies in that position. They know the solution, but they don't have the option, they have the output to get to that solution. They don't have the ability to be faster than that person, to be quicker than that person. And I think that's where we, we just make sure, and you, you mentioned this a lot of staying in the gray zone of making sure we don't go too far one way. And we, we keep these outputs and I, it doesn't have to be a huge focus with most of these football guys. Cause a lot of football guys have like, that's been their whole life is output based, but we still keep these outputs. We try to make them faster. We try to make them stronger. We try to allow, so they produce more force more quickly. And now on the Monday and Thursdays, we give them options like how, how all right, now I can cr- produce this force. Now I can run this quick. Now I can do these things. Now there's a guy in front of me. How do I get past him with these new found abilities? How do I put my body in a bit, a spot to beat this person with these new forces? And I think that's kind of in, like you talk about the missing link a lot in strength conditioning. Like I think that's one of the missing links that we don't have is a lot of athletes have a ton of output and they, 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 they can't get past that person. They, they have no idea what to do with all of it. Mm-hmm. No. And that's absolutely awesome. That was actually, that was one thing, one area I wanted to dive down a little bit during this conversation was something. And I wrote down, I said, I wrote foundation versus exploration. And I think what you are getting at in terms of output is very synonymous kind of with what I'm thinking as, as I'm terming foundation, you know, uh, closed chain movements, closed chain, both in the physical sense and the psychological sense, um, general force production, mobility, all of the power production, all those things kind of that we would, that we view as foundational in a sense. And because, because I always say, how is an athlete supposed to achieve a movement solution that they don't have access to? And now maybe that access, the limiting factor could be mobility. Maybe it could be force production. Maybe it could be speed. It could be a whole bunch of different things, but we as coaches, it's our job. Number one, to give them the opportunity to find these movement solutions. And number two, to make sure that they have access to these movement solutions. Um, and that was absolutely one one thing that I wanted to to dive down with you today, um, because I feel like we did a, a fairly good job of trying to balance that. And now, now it's thinking back and saying, okay, well, we kind of balance these two things. Now, do we need to lean closer one way or the other? Do we need more of A or do we need more of B? And and trying to figure out well, where is that ideal, you know, ideal interdependence at on that spectrum? And that was absolutely something that I wanted to dive down with you today. It's, it's just, it's really interesting to me. And one thing that this, that plays off of this then too, is kind of that idea of like, well, when can we consider as coaches, the foundation to be built? Um, you know, so many coaches talk about build it, build the foundation first and then go explore, which I absolutely think has like, it has value. Like there's absolute truth to that. Oh, all of these things that we talk about are so dependent on your, the context of your athlete and the context of your situation. You know, if I was working with high schoolers, a larger priority would probably be based on, you know, foundation per se, but I wouldn't totally let exploration go out the window. I think there's value there. So it's just all about how you balance these two ideals. But anyway, what I was getting at is, you know, when can we consider that foundation to be built? Like, is there a line to that foundation? is it is it when they double their body weight in squatting like like i don't know like maybe is it when they get you know one and a half times their bench like i maybe you know what i mean like why are these number one why are these movements the the measuring tool that's that's a whole nother conversation is why are these movements why is the squat why is the bench why is the deadlift why do we measure athletes based on these because maybe they're not the best but then it's just like, okay, well then do we look at like velocity? Well, when can we consider the foundation to be built? When will they have the mobility? When will they have the force production abilities? When will they have the power output, the force reserve, all of these different things to then say as coaches, Oh, now we can go explore. Like, no, in my mind, they're synonymous. Like they need to compound one another. You need to build the foundation while still allowing for exploration. And that's something that I felt like we did pretty well. And now it's just about reviewing and saying, okay, did we lean too heavy one way or the other? Yeah. And this is like, you, you mentioned a little bit, but it, it used to be all like force, like in the, in the strength conditioning world, it was all force. Like, Hey, we're going to get these athletes stronger. And then and recently it's like the woke coaches, like the, the new coaches now it's all force velocity. And it, to me, those are still like force and velocity are both output, you know, that it's still that foundation aspect mm-hmm. that you talk about. So like, 
how do we create this? Because now like the, the, the deeming quality of like, how, how do we know if an athlete's deficient? How do we know if an athlete is ready? Is, is that force velocity chart? All right. They're, they're super high force. We need the work velocity, which I like, I understand, I get it, but how can we create a force velocity expiration curve? You know, a force velocity solution curve to where it has all three of these things in there, because I don't care if they have force and velocity, if they don't have a solution in, and we're just talking about football here. Now let's talk about baseball. Like, Athlete's super strong. Like, what? It, what? How, can he throw a baseball? You know, like, can he see what's coming at him? Because he have mm-hmm. a ton of hitting solutions to the problems that he's going to see when that baseball comes in. None of that force velocity matters at all if he doesn't. You know, like, and I, I was having a conversation with a, a coach, and he was talking about how, like, well, that just means like they, they, they suck at their sport. Like, uh, we're going to work on the force velocity things, and if they can't do the rest of it. Like, then they just suck at their sport. I'm like, yeah, no shit. But our job is to get them to not suck at their sport. Like that's our entire <laughs> job. Like you can pat yourself on the back all day for these output solutions. But if you want to be a sports performance coach and they still suck at their sport and you just say, oh, it's just because you suck at your sport, then you're not doing your job and you need to get cut. You know, like you need to take that salary cut because you're not doing what you're supposed to do. You're doing what you want to do, which is give yourself that pat on the back for the force velocity curve. And how do, and that's like, that's the end of the day. Like the question is, how do we make our athletes not bad at their sport? What is their weak link? How are they deficient? And I think that's where you, you mentioned, like, maybe for some athletes, they're, they're high in force, low in velocity, high in, high in output solutions, high in solutions. And then we, do, then we do look at that velocity aspect and we bring that up to the rest of them. But I would say most athletes are going to be high in force, low in velocity, low in creativity, you know, like low in solutions. Mm-hmm. And then we work on these two things and we leave that one alone. But I just feel like that, that force aspect is drill, 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 drill. And it just comes to that law of diminishing returns to where we're not getting a ton more out of it. And even if you are, even if you're adding five pounds to that squat, five pounds to that bench, like what is it actually doing for your athlete on the field? Are they still sucking at their sport? And if you're right with that as a sports coach, I'm like, you're not doing your job, dude. Like at the end of the day, your job yeah. is not to add five pounds to their squat. Your job is to make them suck less at their sport. Yeah, absolutely. And then the next point of that is like, well, okay, that's great. Now we are very output driven. Well, how do we as coaches actually improve that, that skill? Like how do we make them better at their sport? Because so many strength coaches do that as like not their priority, but I think there are so many ways that we can have them improve their sport without actually playing their sport. And I personally think a lot of it comes down to, again, something that I felt, I felt we did fairly well in instituting this year or we improved upon and maybe even we need to take further, but that is giving the athletes autonomy, giving the athletes some sort of control over their program, over, over allowing them to take ownership of their training session in a way. Because so often, so often I feel that, you know, we are raised to follow directions and we're raised to follow in like, listen to our teachers, listen to our coaches, do as they say. And then not enough are we allowed given an opportunity to explore, you know, maybe it's in the school setting or the sport setting as you're being raised and coming up, we are, we're doing all these close chain drills and not enough our kids given the opportunity to explore and create on their own, because that's where number one, true learning and true growth is going to happen is when you're given that opportunity to explore. And that's also where you are going to become more creative. You know, I think creativity is a compounding thing. As you are creative, you're going to generate more thoughts. And that's going to lead to more thoughts. That's going to lead to more. And it's just this, this, this barrel rolling down a hill that's going to keep compounding and get faster and faster and faster. Um, and, you know, one thing that makes me think of, and, and I wrote this in one of my recent articles, was that, like, I gave the example of two teachers. And teacher A and teacher B. And it's time for a big project. Well, teacher A is going to give you a rubric. It's going to tell you exactly what to do, how to do it. If you have a question, you go to teacher A. and they're going to tell you the answer. They're going to tell you the next step. They're going to tell you how to keep you on your path. Teacher B isn't going to give you a rubric. They're just going to simply explain, this is, this is the task. Go for it. And it's your job to explore. It's your job to create. It's your job to come up with a solution to that task and, and essentially like find the route on the map to the location, even though you're not being given a map. And it's like, well, which teacher is better? Because so many people will get frustrated by teacher B. So many people will feel uncomfortable and they'll feel 
they'll go in and ask a question and they won't get the exact answer that they're looking for. So they'll walk away frustrated. Well, like which teacher is better? I, I personally would probably argue teacher B. They're held, they're allowing, they're holding you accountable for your thoughts. They're forcing you to be creative and, and create and explore. Um, you know, one other, this leads me, this makes me think of the example that was in range by David Epstein, which was a book that I talked about a lot on, on our first podcast, but he talked about an example of, I think it was at the Air Force Academy where essentially students have to take a Calc 1 class, they have to take Calc 2, and then from there they go on to more advanced math science classes. Well, they looked at, and so some background, Calc 1 and Calc 2, they're standardized exams, there's hundreds of different professors that teach them, and there's like standardized evaluations at the end. So what they did is they looked at the students that performed really well on these standardized exams in Calc 1, they looked at the professors that were received very high evaluations and very high test scores. And what they found is that students who performed poorly in future classes in Calc 1, future math classes, all of that stuff, usually had a professor in Calc 1 that achieved high test scores, that achieved high test scores, that achieved high peer evaluation and stuff like that. And essentially what they concluded is that the teachers and the professors in Calc 1 that forced a deeper learning, that forced you to be uncomfortable, expand your knowledge base. While they weren't specifically preparing you for the test, they were preparing you for your future. They were preparing you for future classes. While these other professors that achieved very high evaluation, very high test scores, were preparing you for the test, but your students were struggling in the future because they didn't, they didn't get deeper than that. They didn't get deeper than the test. They told you, yeah, the answer to question three is going to be A, not literally, but in that sense. So then you got the question right. You gave them a high evaluation because you got a high grade. You moved on, but then you struggled. And so, and so where, where did I start with this? Oh, giving the athletes autonomy and allowing them to explore, giving them an uncomfortable environment. You know, Brett Bartholomew talks all the time about giving athletes a safe space to, or giving coaches a safe space to fail. And that's essentially what, how I feel we can help these athletes improve in the context of their sport is by giving them autonomy to make decisions and allowing them to be creative. Because, you know, when I was an athlete, I personally would have really struggled with, with being given ownership and forced to make decisions, forced to be creative. That just wasn't really who I am. You know, I followed directions. I listened to my coaches, maybe went a little above and beyond. And like, that was it. That was where I stopped. But if you would have asked me and put me in a situation to maybe like, be a leader or try and try and solve a puzzle or, or make a, create a solution to something where like the path is not particularly ex explained to me, I would have probably have struggled. And I think a lot of athletes are in that boat simply because of how we're raised to follow directions. And so that's something that I think we need to, to break that as coaches. And that's something that's going to have transfer when they are on the field and forced to make their own decisions, forced to solve their environment without the help of the coaches because the coach is standing on the sideline. Yeah. And that, I think, it, I mean, it comes back to though, and as a coach, as a teacher, as a leader in your community, can you handle that pressure, you know, because can you handle the chaos? And this, this is what it comes down to. And I, I keep bringing it back to this, but it's, it's, it's the coach's fault. Like it's that teacher's fault because they don't want to have to do the hard thing. They, they think the hard thing is giving these athletes like that answer to a and making them study and doing that. And, but the hard thing is, giving them the outline and making sure that just enough direction, just enough guidance to get them from point A to point B, but it's not that straight line. Like the easy point is to give them the straight line and dig out that trench and put them on the road and then drag or push them to point B. The tough part is to put them in a the box. Point A is here, point B is here. Now they're going to bounce around. They're going to figure it out. They're going to get frustrated. And this is the other part is like, what happens when your athletes frustrated at you because of the environment you put them in? What happens with the athletes frustrated at you because you're making them lose? What happens when the athletes frustrated at you because everything's not clean cut? Because you put some chaos in their life that they're not used to handling that stress. And I like, I love that. Like, it doesn't feel good in the moment, but like, I know I'm like, all right, this is what they're going to see and feel on the field. This is what they're going to feel in life when something doesn't go right. And if I give them this clean cut cookie cutter thing, like, all right, cones here, cone is there, run to it, do that. 
they're going to feel super good. They're going to be like, all right, that was sweet. And I'm going to give them a pat on the back and tell them, Hey, really good job going from point A to point B really, really good job. Everybody can feel happy, go lucky. Everybody can feel great. We can all like jerk each other off until it's game day. And we're getting shit on by that guy that when the cone's not there, when the option isn't right in front of you and your athlete is cracking under stress, when your athlete can't handle what's in front of them. And that now what that now, now is it all happy go lucky? And now is everybody like just smiling and everything's great? Or is are did you do everybody a disservice for not making that athlete handle those stressful situations, solve those problems beforehand? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one other really cool, cool study, like worth noting, I think I also originally heard about this in, in range, but they essentially looked, they had a couple of monkeys that they came in and had them memorize, had like do a completely memorization task. And they had four separate trials, one where they automatically gave them a hint, one where they gave them a hint whenever they asked for it, one where they gave them a limited number of hints, and one where they gave them no hints whatsoever. Okay, so this is very synonymous with a coach going in and telling the athlete how to complete the problem or telling them exactly how to complete the problem when they ask or when they have a question or simply not giving them the answer and allowing them to discover or helping guide them along their way, but not giving them the direct solution. And essentially what they found is that, is that in the trial where no hints were given, well, let me back up a sec. So they had essentially like three or four practice, I don't know, three or four practice trials. And then they had a game day. And on that game day, they were given all four trials were given no hints whatsoever. Okay. So as they're practicing, as they're working up towards it, the groups that were given hints appeared to be improving rapidly. They appeared to be doing so much better than this group that was not given any hints because they were uncomfortable. They were struggling. They couldn't get it down. And then all of a sudden game day rolled around and now even playing field, no one's given any hints. Who do you think performed best? The group that was given no hints along the way, the group that was slowly building through the struggle, through the uncomfortability. And I think that's absolutely something that can translate to movement and to sport as a whole. Um, It's really interesting. You know, my sister, um, my sister is absolutely awesome. She's a D1 basketball player. She's a beast. I I look up to her so much. But in the summertime, whenever we're home, we'll head over to the gym and we'll always, I always get to like rebound for her as she shoots. And it's so fun to watch because she will shoot 90% from three, you know, as she's just working around, around the perimeter. She'll be like 90%, just like Steph Curry. It's unreal. I'm, I'm in awe every time. But then, but then I walk away from that training session and I think like, are we getting better every time that we're shooting 90% in practice like this? Are we actually improving? Is there value here? And so, so what, what we've started to do is like, we add unpredictability, we add reactivity, we add an opponent, we add the pass arriving in different positions because no way, not a chance in a game. Are you getting it in your hip pocket every single time? You know what I mean? And, and when that happens, she then starts shooting, you know, 70%, 65%, 75%, whatever it might be. And she'll walk away feeling slightly more frustrated. Well, how can we as coaches get that into the athlete's mind and say, no, like, like I understand it doesn't feel as good. I understand you're walking away a little frustrated, but this is what's going to help you along the way. This is what's going to lead to big time game day performances. Hopefully is this uncomfortability is this the struggle through the process. Yeah. And I I love that because you have the, you have that athlete that is super competitive and super pushing forward and we'll be pissed about that 70% and 65%. And that's where it's just on you as a coach to make sure they know why, you know, know, like why we're doing these things. And I think it all comes back to that is like, why are you making me fail when I could shoot that 90%? You know, like why, why Mm -hmm. does that athlete get to do that and look great during this time and feel good about themselves when I have to do this. And I think, instead of just being like that monkey trial and just like, they have no idea what's going on. They're just being put through game day. Like as a coach, your job is mm-hmm. to be like, all right, you're not going to feel great during these sessions. You are going to fail. And here's why laying that out and ma- just making sure that open line of communication is there. Mm-hmm. No, a hundred percent, 100%. That's awesome. And then I want to bring it back to, and I think we kind of went on that whole, the tangent of like life and what, the world is actually doing with this so much boxed in thinking, but kind of drawing it back to our actual field of like the agility drills and giving our athletes autonomy is something that I really enjoyed this summer is almost all of the agility games. So you said we played Razzle a bunch and that's true, 
but I probably played 200 different variations of Razzle this summer, you know, mm-hmm. and I just call it the same game and call the same thing. But you want to talk about creating environments and creating something different. The amount of options that there are, the, 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 the amount of different court sizes, different variations of the starts, different, like if you give your athletes the ability to make that, create the environment, come up with something new, force them to come up with a rule. And that was the coolest part is like starting the summer off, if I ask the athletes, like, all right, I need a rule. I need something here. I, I need a different, I need something, a wrinkle added to this game. So it's something new to you guys, man. It was like pulling teeth. It was literally like pulling teeth out of these guys. Cause they were so nervous. Like they never had to co- tell a coach what to do. And they never had to come up with an option. And by the end of the summer, we'd have conversations. Like we played a couple of games. They're like, Hey, I think it would be cool if you did this. I think it'd be cool if we did that. I think it'd be cool if we added this and adding those wrinkles to the game. And this is how the autonomy ties in. Like that's how I created all my agility games is I have a goal. I have an idea that I drew up on my sheet of paper. I bring it out to the field and 90% of the time it sucked and the athlete would fix it and come up with a much better environment and a much better game and something that's freaking awesome by the time we're done with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And what you end, end up doing with these agility drills is usually not even close to where you started with them. Oftentimes, you know, you just keep compounding and growing. I remember I would ask, I would ask one of our players who's a defensive lineman. That's like, okay, this is what we're doing. What, what could we change with this to make it more similar to what you're seeing on the field? What could we change with this? And for him, it was simply, instead of, we were entering the environment using 180 degree turns. And he said, simply instead of 180 degree turns, let's make them 90 degree turns because as a defensive lineman, he was noted how very rarely am I ever totally twisting my hips, turning the other direction. It's very often, you know, in this 90 degree range in front of me. And I was like, well, that's really interesting. I, I never even thought about that. So that was something small, one small example that we could implement into our game where it's like, Hey, this will more be more similar to what you're seeing on the field, more similar to the environment that you're facing on the field, simply in our training session. Yeah. And like you said, the, the small changes and I had the same, a very same situation, but with an offense lineman and moving a cone to a certain part and, just the, like, it seems so simple. Like you talk about like a 180 degree and 90 degree, but if, unless you ask your athletes, like you're never going to know that you're never going to know that's what they're feeling. This is what it is. And once they have that control and they're like, it, it just makes so much more sense. And it just takes an athlete's perspective, somebody that actually has real skin in the game in the moment to come up with in a snap of my as long as you allow them to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. And and further, it's, you know, it just goes back to the idea of, of giving them autonomy. And the other thing it goes back to is, is building that relationship with your athlete early. You know, one of the first things I said was like through that structured warm-up was like building a relationship with your athletes. And I think that's something that's huge when it comes to these types of things, when you're allowing, giving them autonomy and helping them mold the environment is that you need to have a comfortable relationship with them that, that gives them the freedom, gives them that safe space to fail and gives them the freedom to make decisions and be be a advocate and be part of the training session and take ownership of it. Yeah. And, and that's the, the foundation of everything. I kind of want to transition now. We've talked a lot about the field work into the weight room. And one of the big changes for me this year, and this is the first time I've implemented it was the weekly change of main exercises, the weekly change of our strength work. And I was very much into an I, I, when I was in high school, I did a linear approach of literally you do the same main exercise for 15 weeks straight, just different loads, different percentages. Then I got super into the DeFranco through week loading, which helped a ton. But still by, by the end of those three weeks, like if you're an athlete, that's really pushing yourself doing that same lift for three weeks, adding weight every single time, like it, it wrecks your body. Like you do not feel great by the end of those three weeks because you've pushed that lift to the max. Something. And I just talking with Grant Fowler and just a lot of other guys out there is like, changing it every single week. And this is something I saw like right away with the athletes is the amount of fatigue we got from those barbell lifts so much lower. Like it was, it was night and day lower every single week we go, let's say one week you would do, and we, we have a goal. Like, so we started with RDLs five at max. Uh, that was our start five at max. We'd come back to those in 12 weeks, which we did. And every single guy PR on those, like it was nothing. They hadn't done them in 12 weeks. They just got globally stronger, but Every week we start with those RDLs for five rep max. Next week we're going to come back and we're going to squat. Week after maybe we do a deadlift, a hex bar deadlift from the floor. The week after we're going to do something with bands on it, something with chains on it, but just different loading patterns every single week. 
And that little change from that three week to the one week loading pattern to me made a night and day difference in the level of fatigue we saw from my athletes, the level of, oh, my low back feels it from this, this feels it from this, just because I think we're spreading out that load on our athletes so much more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just challenging them in new and different ways. And one thing, one thing thinking back that I kind of wish, one thing I would like to improve moving forward is some sort of more finding different ways to measure output in the beginning and then in the end. So kind of the pre-training and the post-training. I feel like that was something I personally struggle with, with my group um, was finding true measurables that you know, seeing a back squat performance early or whatever you, your strength load you want to give them early and then circling back to that strength load later and seeing like, hey, yeah, we did improve our strength even though we didn't RDL once throughout the entire training session. And that was something that I think I need to improve upon is, is finding those measurables and, and utilizing them in the correct way. Yeah, and I think that's something I talk about a lot. Talk about finding these, like improving these measurables. But again, I almost because this is something I've been writing about too, is like, do I do that to feel good as a coach to show the athlete that? Because at the end of the day, like, and this, this is me just talking right now in the way that I, I've been thinking. I don't know if this is right or wrong, but am I looking for these output increases just so I can show the athlete, hey, guys, like, I did a really good job with you. Look at, I still increased your thing. Like, I, it, I increased your vertical. I have these measures. This. Like, at the end of the day, at the training session, if, if they feel great, they feel better, and they're on the field performing, do we necessarily need to look for more output increases? I'm not saying yes or no. I, I do think there is a time and there is a spot for pre and post measurements, but I don't know if that's just because I'm looking for those as a coach to boost my ego, to show the athletes what they did. And again, if an athlete sees that, like their, their, their confidence skyrockets, like, Oh yeah, this summer training. So I do think there's merit there, but I just think mm -hmm. like a lot of times with this data and a lot of things that we're doing, like, are we doing that for the athletes or are we doing that for ourselves to show the athletes how good we are? Yeah. And that's really interesting. I guess I just think back, I think back to when I was an athlete and, and I know you were in a similar boat as me here. Was that like seeing those weight room numbers went up was something that you really enjoyed. And so it was almost like a psychological kick, but you're absolutely right in saying that, well, as coaches, we need to, you know, navigate the minutia like we need to navigate well what what is true and what is simply present because it's always been there you know and so that's a very interesting point you bring up because like i think back to when i was an athlete i think that was something that i really looked up to was seeing my numbers increase in the weight room thinking i'm becoming a better athlete and so maybe it's about i don't know it's a great question because it's like is it about not having the numbers at all because they're not needed or about finding the correct measurables? You know, that's kind of the question. Yeah. And, and, and you said finding, but also valuing the correct measurables because yeah, as athletes, like you said, like you, you and I were similar, like we wanted to see those weight room numbers because we value those because our coaches value those, you know, like that's what we we're yeah. going to be rewarded for. That's what the coaches were going to tell us nice job for. But at the end of the day, did that make me a better athlete? Did that make me a defensive lineman? Probably not. Like I probably already had the necessary strength levels. I just got rewarded for that. So I was searching it out more. So now how do we find a way to, I talked about this a little bit with Joel Smith, is reward what is going to be good on the field. You know, like reward the actual measurables that matter. And whatever that is for your program, maybe that's speed numbers, maybe that's vertical numbers. Maybe you have a find a way, you found a way to, measure creativity that type of thing but like whatever it is for your program making sure you're valuing the right things not valuing things that aren't going to matter because whatever you value at the top level the value the athlete's going to value at the smaller level because they know that's that's what they're going to get a pat on the back for that's what they're going to get a good job for mm -hmm. yeah yeah absolutely and then it's just about yeah finding continuing keeping the communication going and and as a coach communicating where those values lie, you know, communicating the fact that, that these things, and this is something that I think I would love to pick your brain about and think, ask you how you feel you accomplished this this summer, as well as like specifically like how and the, and the way that you did it. But, and that is continuing to communicate the value of these games that we play, you know, games in quotes and continuing to communicate the value of all the, the play that we do throughout a training session. You know, it's very, fun and enjoyable to play spike ball for 20 minutes to start the training session. But again, thinking back to when I was an athlete, I feel like I would have ended that 20 minute spike ball session and thought like, 
wow, that was fun. It was almost like too fun. Like that wasn't true training. Like, like it was fun. You know, I didn't get better in that 20 minute time span. Like that was just something we did, did for fun, but continuing as a coach to communicate that value and telling them like, no, we are doing this for a reason. And, and so I'd love to pick your brain about that. Yeah. And that's, it's cool that you mentioned that part because a couple, a week or two ago, one of the athletes came out to me and he's like, you've changed my mind on what matters in training. You've changed my thoughts on training and how to approach it. And I thought that was cool because I mean, that's, that is the start of it. Once you change their mind on what matters and until you do that, nothing that you do matters because they're going to do their own thing regardless until you get that buy-in and belief into what you're doing and then start to change it. Nothing else matters. Once you change it, you can do anything. Like once I worked with that athlete and told him why we're doing spike ball, the positions it does. And once I showed him the post that I wrote about it, like how much better we're going to feel, how much better we're going to move, how many more solutions we're going to have. Some of the shoulder issues we have when we're diving, when we're falling, we're getting the competitive edge up. These type of things. Once I got that into his head and that little seed, and then he bought into that, then I, then, then we can do anything with him. Then spike ball at the end of it. He's like, yes, this is what matters. We're going to go squat today. But that game based thing we did at the beginning, like that is the number one priority. And the only way to do that is to continue to emphasize it, fully believe it yourself as a coach. Like this is the other thing. And I totally had to switch my, the last year and a half, switch up how I rewarded people. Cause it used to be like, you'd see a guy lift a lot of weight and it would be like, you just naturally as a coach, you want to say, good job. Like you saw that weight being moved. And you're like, hell yeah, let's go. And you would have the music playing for that. And that's when it would be competitive. That's when the coach is paying attention not paying attention during your sprints, that type of thing. And you're valuing that. You can talk all you want about movement. If in the weight room, you guys are getting jacked up, you're, that's when you're slapping your athletes. That's when you're getting hyped up with your athletes. What are they going to value? Like they, they're going to value that weight room session. And that's where I had to start to switch. I'm like, oh shit, what do I value? What it, it's when an athlete makes a sweet diving play in spike ball. It's when an athlete comes up with a new cool solution for variation starts, for bear crawls, for that. That is, and I still, I think I messed it up a couple times, but I have actively been thinking, all right, when do I say good job? It, it, it's when they come up with something new. It's when they, they have a creative solution, when they do something. And that's when they start to be like, ooh, this is what he's going to give me a pat on the back for. And it, it sounds kind of messed up because like some psychological trick that you're playing on your athletes. But if it's help, helping them in the end, and that's what you're valuing in the end, and you start to train them in quotations to continue to push these barriers, then, then they're just going to do it as long as they believe in you, which if, and we're in the private training sector right now, like if they're coming to you, they believe in you in some regard, you know, like at least in this regard, like there, there's some training centers that are babies. Like they, they, they just drop off their kids. So it's a bit, it's an hour that they get babysat for, but in our small private, private training sector, like these athletes are coming to you because they believe in you. So now just continue to reemphasize these things and to continue to show them what you believe in they believe in you. Now you believe in this. Now they're going to value those things. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent where, where the coach values is where the athlete will learn to also value, you know, because that was why we valued the weight room so much when we were younger, because that was what, what, where coaches got hyped. That was where, where we felt energized, you know, but if we can transition that into the field, when creative solutions are being created, well, that will then become more valued as time goes on. And one thing I wanted to dive into there is a little, because we started talking about it is spike ball. Um, you know, how we use spike ball and how I feel it was important to our training sessions. And, and because one really interesting thing was that a lot of your guys kind of struggled with spike ball early on, like they weren't very good, but by the end of summer, they were like, they were competing. You know what I mean? They were up to, they were up to snuff. Like they were, they were crushing spike ball. And so seeing that learning curve and seeing how quickly they were able to adapt to the game, learn the game and adjust their movement accordingly was something that was really, really cool. And so now as coaches, it's about, okay, now how can we find a new game? What can we, what can we take from spike ball and incorporate somewhere else to allow them to have a similar learning curve next summer, you know, give them some sort of new tool that they can add to their toolbox because spike ball is great. But it's not spike ball is the vehicle. You know what I mean? It's 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 simply one way of doing it. It's a tool to the end that the solution that we crave, which is movement variability, which is movement learning, 
which is at the time of a warm-up, CNS activation, um, and all the benefits of a warm-up. So now it's about what more, what other games can we implement that's going to achieve similar solutions and allow them to have a similar learning curve next summer. Yeah, and exactly, exactly something that I've been writing about is like, again, the goal is not to master the game. And when you play something over and over and over again, you start to become a master of the game. It becomes very similar to the barbell, like the game of the barbell. A lot of athletes' goal is to master the barbell, master the squat, add more weight to the squat, and become a master at that individual thing. When you become a master at that individual thing, it's taking away from other things that you could be doing during that time. Your goal, you should have one goal. Whatever that goal is, it's to become a master of that. As a football player, your goal should become a master of your position. Everything else is a vehicle and a tool to get you to become a master of that position. So how can we give you as many tools as possible? So like you said, like some of my thought processes is like, how can we sub out spike ball and using spike ball? And this is just one example of it, but using spike ball some days to use that, but also using a game like handball, using a game like ultimate Frisbee, just to where we can explore just so they're almost not getting too good and not mastering so much of a single game, but we're exploring them to things they suck at. All right, now they have to throw a frisbee. They, they they get that action in there. They still have to read a field. Now they're moving. They have to catch a different object. They have to use their eyes, use their hands in a different way. They got a handball now. They have to learn a different zone. They have to learn a different playing style. How much space do they have? How much time do they have with this ball? Now they have to catch a round ball. Like, how can we use it, these things as tools again? And not making making sure a tool is not becoming a master. You know, like a tool is not becoming the goal because our goal should we mm-hmm. should have one global goal whatever that goal is for you as an athlete make sure that goal is the goal because most of the time it's not most of the time you want to become a better football player and you do it by making the goal of becoming the best olympic lifter making the goal of becoming the best sprinter making the goal of becoming the best whatever you want to call it and making sure we stay out of that thought process and keeping the goal the goal yeah absolutely and one one really interesting quote that i read recently um, I, I think it Bruce it's from Bruce Lee, who, who I love Bruce Lee and value actually a lot of his thoughts, but he said, I fear not the man who has practiced 10,000. I fear not the man who has practiced 10,000 kicks once, but I fear the man who has practiced one kick 10,000 times. And it's kind of like, why, you know, like, you know, it's like what you're saying. We don't want to master one tool. We want to become adaptable. We want to become, we want to obtain dexterity. And if you're a defensive lineman and have one pass rush move that you've practiced 10,000 times, you're going to be so easy to stop. Like you're going to like, no doubt if you're a tennis player who has practiced your backhand 10,000 times, it's like, what happens when I give you a, a forehand, I think it's called or whatever, but on another side. <laughs> um, and so I almost, I almost like disagree with the quote in a sense and nothing against Bruce Lee because he also says, you know, be formless, be like water. And I know that's something that you talk about all the time is like molding to the environment that you're given and molding your movement to fit the environment in order to solve it. And so that was something that I just, I read the other day that I I almost like questioned and then it goes along perfectly with what you're saying, how we need, we want to make athletes, we want to fill their toolbox. We want to fill their toolbox to the best of our abilities. You know, would you hire a carpenter who only carry carries around a hammer? Like, no, he has no value at all. He has one tool in his toolbox, quite literally. And so it's all about giving the athlete many different solutions. And that goes along with, with spike ball, but then also, okay, now what's next? What other games can we implement that we can incorporate into the warmup that are low impact, that are going to increase movement solutions, increase movement variability, and allow them to explore their movement in a way, and also give them a new game that they're uncomfortable with that eventually they'll master. But the toughest part, we talked about this a little bit before, before starting recording here, was that it's easy for athletes, once they get really good at a game, to really want to play that game. It's tough to then implement a new game where it's like, they're going to suck at it and they're going to struggle. And it's just continuing to remind them, like, you will get good at this eventually. And when you do, you'll see that growth that you've accomplished. But it's going to be a struggle to get there. We can't simply play spike ball all the time because now you have mastered it and our, the bang for our buck isn't quite there like it used to be. Yeah, exactly. And the, I want to bring it back to that carpenter solution because like, I think with the, the Bruce Lee comments, like we want a carpenter that has 10,000 hours of being a carpenter 
with as many tools as he wants to have. You know, like I do not want mm-hmm. a carpenter that has 10,000 hours of swinging the hammer. That's not what I want. Because like you said, like if he's a master of swinging a hammer and he needs to use something else like that, that, that is not going to do me any good. I want him to master being a carpenter with 10,000 hours, as many tools as he needs to do that. I do not care. Like whatever you need to use to do that. But I think, like you said, like most people are going to swear they're, they're going to master the hammer. They're going to master the barbell. They're going to master spike ball, like whatever the hell it is. Like they're going to master that one thing and they're not an actual master of their sport, but they trick themselves into being one. Like they, they tricked the, all right, I mm-hmm. mastered this. Now I'm a master. Like, no, like it's so meticulous to become a master of your actual craft because it's so many things that go into that craft. I want you a master of carpenter. Like I want you to be a master carpenter. I do not want you to be a master hammer swinger and just continue mm-hmm. to keep emphasizing these things. And you said like, they don't, they don't want to, they don't want to switch it up. Like, and I think this is something cool again, because we taught we're, we're using spike ball as our, our example, because that we, we've got past the point, but they don't want to switch now because they're good at spike ball. And we bring this back to the weight room. Athletes don't want to switch from the weight room because they're good at the weight room. And this is something that bugs me. And I've mentioned it multiple times. Like a lot of athletes think they're mentally tough because they can grind in the weight room all day. Like that, yeah, that's not mentally tough. Like you're good at that. You, you want to do that. You are doing that because you get benefits from it. Like that's almost the exact opposite of mentally tough. And I, I, I say this being that athlete, that was the same one. Like I thought I'm, I'm grinding, I'm doing this. I'm, I'm like, no, you go in the weight room. Cause you're, you're cool in the weight room. Like that is your environment. And that's the spot you look good in. Like that's, that's where people look up to you. That's not mentally tough. That's mentally weak. Like you need to actually become mentally tough. You need to embrace the suck. You need to embrace being able to learn at these things and continuing to push forward with those. Yeah. And that's so I forget which, which episode it was that you brought that up on, but I remember hearing you say that and totally relating it to my life and thinking, wow, when I was in college and when I would lift twice a day or whatever it was, I really thought like I was so mentally tough. And I was like, I was so driven. I'm so much more driven than all these other people. I'm lifting twice a day, but I was only doing things that I enjoyed. Like I went through a phase where I was Olympic lifting. And so like I would Olympic lift like every single day because it was something I enjoyed, but I had the thought process of saying like, wow, I'm so mentally tough. I'm lifting every day way more than these other people. But it's so true. It's like, that's not mental toughness. You're doing something that you enjoy. Go try, you know, I was a kicker, go try like hitting somebody or go try getting some contact prep in. And I would have been absolutely horrible at it. Are you kidding me? I'm not, I'm not a very violent guy. I'm a kicker. So it's uh, so it's so funny that you bring that up because that was something that you mentioned a while back that I really connected with too. Yeah. And the, to, to kind of bring this podcast to the end, I, I want to bring up some things that we think we could change and improve upon. And we, we brought up the spike ball thing. And I think that's something that we talked to both about a little bit is like not emphasizing spike balls so much, but emphasizing those game-based movements and different solutions there. But the other thing I thought about during this podcast is one thing I really want to improve upon is like different ways to tackle without tackling and put ourselves into positions to tackle without tackle. Because a lot of times in those small sided agility games, I always had the t-shirts be the flag and I always put their t-shirt in the back of their pocket and we would switch up to positions. Maybe it'd be side pocket, front pocket, front pocket was kind of dangerous because there's a lot of reaching, reaching for stuff they shouldn't reach for. But trying to find a way to switch up these tackle solutions. Maybe it is having two hand touch. Maybe it is changing this up. And I bring this up because I'm not, we're not going to do a full tackle situation in our environment that we have in the summer, but maybe it's adding flags. Maybe it, maybe it's taking a hat off a person and just something different to make sure, because I, I noticed halfway, not halfway through, but a couple of weeks towards the end of the season, like, now the guys knew how they were going to be tackled. So they would create non game like movements to where they would throw their butt away from the tackle. So the guy can't actually grab the shirt. So he's not actually avoiding the tackle. He's avoiding the guy reaching his shirt. So he's winning that game, but now the game isn't transitioning as much because they, they found a way to cheat the game basically. So that, that was one thing that I mm-hmm. want to talk about is like different ways to do that. That is something that I definitely think we can improve upon for next season is to make that almost more realistic or at least change it up so they can't cheat it as much. Yeah. And that's really interesting because coming from coming from the other point of view as like the defender, whenever you would put that t-shirt in their back pocket or like the, like a tail almost behind them, it was very easy for them to almost be lazy and simply reach around to pull the t-shirt as opposed to getting into a good position in front of them and holding their ground and, and, you know, in a sense like prepping for contact 
as they would actually on the field. And so that's really interesting point. I actually never, I, I, I haven't really thought about that, but it's very interesting how they found ways around the game essentially. And now for us as coaches, it's okay. Now what's the next step? Like, how can we, how can we eliminate that and move on and continue to grow and, and make this game better? Yeah. And like you, you said, I love that you mentioned that point because in some games it was really good when I wanted a high contact game and there wasn't a ton of running. It'd be like the t-shirt game where they had to get around the person and grab the shirt and turn it almost like sumo wrestling for the t-shirt. Love that. Where games were is more running a razzle type game to where it almost encouraged a defender to get beat because then the offensive guy's backside was mm. to him. So like the defender would get mm-hmm. beat and he would be able to pull the t-shirt and win. And it's almost encouraging, mm-hmm. like being slower than the offensive guy, because if you're faster than the offensive guy, he's still in front of you. Then you have to reach around and you have a chance to get deep. So, yeah, like you said, just finding a different way to emphasize that. Yeah, really good point. Really good point there. Yeah. Is there any other things that you can think of right now that room for improvement things kind of on the summer that 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 you can kind of think of? Yeah. Yeah. One big thing, a couple of big things that I, that I wrote down here. One um, specifically looking at my coaching is communication and continuing to try to find that balance between talking too much and not talking enough. Um, you know, I felt, I felt some days in training, I was way on one side where I was talking way too much. And then some days I felt like I was on the other side where I wasn't talking near enough. And I wasn't, I wasn't giving enough direction and giving them, you know, putting them on the right path to solve the problem. And, and sometimes, you know, the game didn't look exactly how I envisioned it, which, which is okay. Sometimes like that's totally, totally cool. Sometimes is that because athletes are creative. They're going to, they're going to answer the problem in a different way than you initially think they're going to sometimes, which is very much okay. And it leads to great solutions and great drills, great environments. And so, but that's something that I personally need to continue working on is balancing that communication. The second thing, second thing that I thought of was in my group, and I think this was in yours too sometimes, was that look, trying to separate, and specifically looking at football players now, but trying to separate the skill sets between, you know, the, the big guys and the little guys, you know, because the skill sets are so different when we look at offensive linemen, defensive linemen, linebackers, tight ends that type of stuff to when we look at wide receivers, defensive backs, safeties, running backs, et cetera. And so while, while there is absolutely benefits to having a D lineman work with receivers in this agility based one V one t-shirt tag or whatever it might be, there's absolutely benefits there. Like that will carry over, but trying to find ways. So somehow like separating those two into groups and finding ways to get a little bit more specific a little bit more contact maybe for the bigger guys, a little bit, a little bit less contact more for the little guys, although they still need so much of it. So many quote unquote, like little guys, you know, like struggle with contact. I think back to when I was a receiver, I guess that dates way back to like high school, but, and I hated stock blocking and stuff like that, but that was probably what I needed more than anything at the time. And so trying to draw that line, but then of course you get into like, well, that line needs to be muddied in some way. Like there needs to be carryover on both sides of that fence, but it's just about trying to draw a little bit of a line there and separating the two groups in some sort of way. Yeah. And that's, that's, I mean, I love that you bring up that point because that's something that I've been thinking about and definitely something I need to dive into more is we talked about the creativity aspect. So you have the force velocity, creativity, that curve that we talked about. Now, how do we break down that creativity to, and creativity as in like movement solutions, movement options that they have, like, general movement options and just being like a, a range for like a generalist, like you have a ton of options. You can just be a good athlete with the specific movement options of what your sport demands. And how much time do you emphasize one or the other? How much time do you put into these two things? Do, is, it, is it all right to just be a, just a generalist mover and then have the sport practice take care of it? Or do you need to become a specific mover in your position in training as well like and then how do you balance these things and that that was something that i I thought about constantly is all right do i need this offensive lineman just to generally move better or do i need him to just get into positions and do the things that he's going to see on the on the court and how much time do i spend on each one how much how many positions how many games do i put them in for each one and continue and emphasize and i definitely think that like that that's an awesome point because that's something i wrote down of all right continue to dive into this realm of things, continue to look into these things 
And maybe it's a spectrum too. Maybe there's just a really good mover and he's not as good at their sport. And that's where you emphasize those specific movements or maybe, and I've seen athletes like this too, that they, they know how to get in positions in their sport. They, they have a tactical understanding of their sport, the technical understanding of their sport, but they're bad movers just in general. So if you give them just more generalist movements, that will help their sport. And I think, again, it comes down to the spectrum in which athlete you're working with. But it's definitely something that I've been thinking about. Yeah. I mean, it's so context dependent, of course, but then, then as coaches, uh, it's just the toughest part is, so you get groups and we were semi-private, you know, so we were working with anywhere from like three to 10 or 12 guys, however many we had that day. And so it's about trying to prioritize different, different athlete needs while still working with the group as a cohesive unit. And I feel like that's a definitely a challenge that's brought on by semi-private training is that you want you want to individualize, but you also need that cohesive unit because that creates an interdependence that, that, that creates uh, a mutual competitiveness, a mutual energy, which is going to create more movement solutions, you know, circling back, like creativity creates creativity. And so if I have an athlete that's, that's coming up with great movement solutions, that's, that's being so creative, that energy is going to transfer to other athletes. Now, the question is, as circling back is, well, do we need to create more solutions with that athlete or do they need something else? How can we individualize? And that's probably going to be a never ending challenge for coaches. You know, it's just, it's very tough to do, but it's something that we need to continue to try and perfect and get better at. Yeah. I think that's awesome. I think that's a good spot to end this podcast because it has my brain thinking. I really want to draw up this chart now to be able to break it down. I, I wish I was a better artist. So I could do all these things and I have an idea of in my head of what I want this to look like, but Carter, thanks for being on, man. This is, this is awesome. No, I really appreciate you, my man. I had a blast this whole summer, blast, you know, communicating with you, bouncing ideas off you all summer and really, really growing as a coach right now, right along, right with right, uh, next to you. Boom. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood.